0: Last weekend, Russian troops pulled back from the outskirts of Kiev and the carnage they had caused and the destruction they had left behind was laid bare for the whole world to witness.
1: A mass grave for what Ukraine has called a massacre. Russian troops accused of killing civilians before pulling out of this town close to Kiev.
0: Pockmarked roads were blocked by burned-out cars and destroyed tanks. The bodies of civilians shot dead littered the streets and those who were left alive ...were terrorised almost beyond reason. There was almost universal consensus... ...that the deaths constituted war crimes. While Russia today claimed the disturbing images were staged... ...President Zelensky is not mincing words. This is genocide. The elimination of the whole nation... The images of the dead and the testimony of those left behind has galvanised the EU and more sanctions against Russia have been announced. The sanctions are impacting uh, and our sanctions will deepen as the impact deepens. But will sanctions work? Is there consensus across the EU about its approach to the war in Ukraine? And what does the landslide victory of Viktor Orban in the Hungarian elections mean for EU cohesion as the conflict continues? This is In The News from The Irish Times. I'm Conor Pope. Today, what the EU is doing to take on Putin and what the re-election of Viktor Orban means. Naomi O'Leary is the Europe correspondent with The Irish Times. Naomi, Russia has been accused of war crimes after detailed and disturbing reports and pictures documenting atrocities and mass graves near Kiev emerged this week. How have those reports been received across the EU?
1: The response is really widespread, disgust, I think, and, you know, fury, certainly in the member states that border Russia in the EU, because if you pay attention to the Russian rhetoric, they don't just talk about Ukraine, but they talk about, in general, the states that used to be part of the Soviet Union. Um, So it's very easy for them to imagine that this is the policy that would also inflicted on their populations, uh, you know, if this sort of military advance by Russia went any further. So it's extremely personal for them. But the the widespread feelings of, you know, being appalled and outraged that go much further. Definitely there was a sense this week that those images, the pictures of people's hands bound behind their back and lying dead and, you know, the people who evidently appeared to be civilians, you know, in civilian clothes, carrying their groceries or, you know, lying beside their bicycles where they've been cycling. All of this has driven momentum for stronger action. And it means that a package of sanctions which the EU had been preparing for this week is likely to be harder than it would have been otherwise.
0: And what's the mood like in Brussels and indeed across the European Union now after a month of conflict in Ukraine?
1: The links between the Ukrainian government and leadership and the EU had already been very tight, but have tightened even further. So there's almost been a structural introduction of Ukrainian officials into the institutions. So, for example, when agriculture ministers meet, the Ukrainian agriculture minister will dial in over video call or, you know, whatever formula it is, the foreign minister dials in you know, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president, has addressed the leaders um multiple times. So there's a sense of immediacy and closeness that's also on the ground visible because you know refugees are actually present on the trains, you know, they're visible in the train network throughout Europe as they make their way to safety. Um, so there's a real immediacy, not that much separates the heart of the EU from this war. Um, so There's a feeling that it's wartime. At the same time, the sort of huge rush of solidarity and almost um, positive feeling that there was at the outset of the invasion that happened. As things go on, things get much more grim. And I think that there's possibility that people will become embittered because although I said that the sanctions package this week is likely to be harder than it would otherwise, it's almost certainly going to fall short of what the Ukrainians want. And I think, you know, when people see that response falling short, especially in the light of the killing of civilians and what everyone expects will be much more worse news to come as um, out of places that are still under occupation like Mariupol. um, I think there's a possibility for great disillusionment and anger.
0: And who would that anger be directed towards?
1: Well, I think it's a real dilemma. Um, Essentially, there are a couple of very strong demands of the Ukrainian government. Uh, which they've been clear about for weeks. And one of them is to send them more arms. Um, in particular, they want tanks, planes, and they want a robust kind of anti-aircraft defence system. Uh, they've been asking for that for from NATO and from other Western powers. They have got military support from a number of them, but it doesn't go far enough in their view. And the resistance to that uh, among the West is primarily because the Western governments do not want to become active combatants in this war because they f- they consider that that would be an escalation into World War Three scenario um, with Russia fighting NATO. Um, so how to avoid that is a kind of delicate dance. And it's come down to the defin- how you define weapons. Do you define weapons as offensive or defensive? And there's been this argument that Ukrainians can only be given defensive weapons, not offensive ones, and that that would avoid escalation, for example. And Ukrainians reject that outright. They say that, you know, any weapons given to Ukraine in this scenario are by definition defensive because they're fighting off an, an invasion. They're not invading anybody. They're trying to push back Russian troops that are holding their cities. And this week we heard Dmitry Kuleba, the foreign minister, say that he will from now on hold Western leaders responsible if they refuse weapons that the Ukrainians are asking for, that he'll hold them responsible for the civilians who will no doubt die, the women who will be raped and the people who will suffer atrocities in the areas of Ukraine that are still under Russian control. The second area of debate is on how far sanctions can go. And there, I think, in the EU, you have a bloc that wants to go further, a bloc that is wants to, you know, just throw everything at this immediately. And then there are a group of countries who are more cautious and who warn that there are limits to the economic pain that their citizens can take. And they don't want to risk cause, causing political instability or You know, undermining the economy of the EU, which will be needed in order to continue to support Ukraine and ultimately to rebuild it.
0: Okay, we we might actually talk about the sanctions uh, now because the EU was very quick. to roll out what it said were the harshest sanctions in the immediate aftermath of the outbreak of the war last month. And among the sanctions were financial sanctions, energy sanctions, sanctions targeting the aviation sector and the technology sector, and there was a ban on the export of luxury goods to Russia. And there was a whole lot more. Does the EU have a sense now about the impact those sanctions have had on Russia?
1: The aim of the sanctions was to undermine the Russian economy in the medium to long term. So things like depriving the Russian oil industry of key components and technology that it needs will ultimately cripple its oil industry and its oil exports. Likewise, with things like plane parts, you know, Russia isn't getting the plane components that it needs to maintain its fleet of aircraft. Um, Its airline industry is likely to get a bit more dangerous over the coming times because there's going to be maintenance problems. This is sort of replicated across Russian economic sectors. They suddenly don't have access to the technological parts that they had before, that they're not able to make themselves. A key question is China and whether China will continue to do trade on key parts. The EU has been pushing for Beijing to, if they don't join the sanctions, at least not to help Russia evade them. But there's quite a strong disagreement um, between Beijing and Brussels on that.
0: Yesterday, the EU unveiled new sanctions targeting Russia. What was included in the latest round and
1: what was left out? Um, This would include a ban on imports of coal from Russia, which is worth an estimated €4 billion annually. Um, It would also ban transactions outright with four key Russian banks, which goes further than the current measures in terms of kicking them off the SWIFT international payment system. Um, there was also a number of proposals, including uh, barring um, certain Russian vessels from accessing EU ports, uh, hitting Russian and Belarusian uh, road transport operators, which goes some way towards the uh, sort of road trade embargo that some um, more hardline EU member states have been calling from. And there would also be targeted measures on key imports from Russia, including things like cement, seafood and liqueur, probably vodka um, and as well as adding new individuals onto the lists of those whose assets are frozen and who have a travel ban. Um, So that was announced by the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, who said in reference to the evidence of atrocities in the town of Bucha, these atrocities cannot and will not be left unanswered. Today, more than 40 countries apply sanctions like these. To take a
0: clear stand is not only crucial for us in Europe, but also for the rest of the world. A clear stand against Putin's war of choice, a clear stand against the massacre of civilians and a clear stand against the violation of the fundamental principles of the world order. Slava,
1: Ukraine. These uh, sanctions are harder than they would have been otherwise. I think if we hadn't had the reports coming out over uh, the weekend, uh, we would have had a f- package that was more focused on kind of tidying up and hardening existing sanctions. Um, so this is certainly a hardening. Um, some key things have been left out though. Most sort of glaringly is there's no sanctions on Russian oil imports, which had been a key demand and had won support, including uh, crucially from the French President Emmanuel Macron in recent days. Um, So that's not on there. It also does include Russian gas imports. Um, That had won the support of some 200 MEPs who signed a letter calling for that um, uh, on Tuesday, including the five Irish Fine Gael MEPs. Um, But That was seen as less likely to win consensus uh, than something like oil because there are member states who don't have many other options apart from Russian gas. So they've always been somewhat unlikely to support that.
0: The European Union is still pumping hundreds of millions of euro into the Russian energy sector every single day. I think it's close to a billion euro a day, in fact. So does that mean that the EU is in at least in part funding the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And why can't we just stop bringing in energy, uh, gas and oil from Russia? Or would that just be too grave a consequence for the European economies across the board?
1: Yeah, the value of Russian gas exports to the EU daily has averaged between 200 million euro and 800 million euro since the start of the year. Um, so it's an extremely significant stream of cash that goes pretty much directly to the Russian state um, and supports it. We've seen Russia quite effectively mount an economic uh, fight back against the effective of sanctions. Um, while there are all these fundamental challenges to its economy that I outlined, they have managed to stabilise the fall in the value of the ruble um, by gambits, including saying that they were going to demand payment for gas in rubles. And they also reopened their stock market in a limited, very controlled way, but that avoided a complete crash. So now the question is, what sanctions can hit next? EU countries have different opinions on this, also because they have different realities in terms of where they get their energy. Ireland is one of the states that's in favour of cutting the gas completely, but Ireland doesn't get any Russian gas, so it's relatively easy for our government to say that. The countries that it's particularly difficult for are Austria and Hungary, for example. They are landlocked. They can't easily get liquid natural gas, which is shipped typically to Europe, um, and difficult to move over land. So if they don't have Russian gas, there's a big question about what they would use to heat their homes. Equally for Germany, the concern of Germany is that this Russian gas, the role that it has in its economy is it keeps the factories going and if Germany's industrial manufacturing sector had to shut down, um, you know, that would have massive implications for the entire EU economy. And essentially, Chancellor Olaf, Olaf Scholz has said, has said the price would be too high. It would cause a hit to GDP. And, um, you know, th- that money, that economic robustness would will be needed to continue to support Ukraine and to rebuild it afterwards. Um, and then the big debate is now... in in finding sanctions that hurt Russia more than they hurt the EU, first of all. That's one of the tests. And the second thing is to identify what EU publics will take. And that's different in different countries. For some that are bordering Russia, they just want more and more and more and more sanctions, like the maximum sanctions. They want to block even road freight and ports trade for Russia and just cut off the energy completely, no matter the cost. But other EU publics, there's a concern that there could be a backlash and it could even endanger governments, cause governments to fall. And that kind of political instability wouldn't be helpful either. I think there's a particular eye on the coming French election in that regard, um, given how sensitive the French public has been to stuff like the price of petrol in the past.
0: Coming up, the re-election of Viktor Orban in Hungary and what it might mean for the rest of Europe. Naomi, at the weekend, Hungary's nationalist prime minister, Viktor Orbán, won a fourth consecutive election.
1: In
0: In fact, he didn't just win, he won it in a landslide. Nearly all the votes counted. His Fidesz party had more than 53% of the vote, meaning it will retain its two-thirds majority in parliament. Was his victory and the scale of it a surprise?
1: The victory in itself was not a surprise in the EU. People had expected him to win. But I think the fact that he increased his margin, that was something people weren't necessarily expecting, particularly since the Hungarian opposition had, for the first time, managed to all rally, uh, combine their efforts behind a single candidate, six different ox- opposition parties. And also because of the election took place on a weekend, where those horrific images were coming out of Ukraine showing the civilians who had been executed there was a you know some perhaps wistful thinking that maybe um, the Hungarian electorate would think twice about Mr Orbán's stance towards Russia which has been relatively warm I mean it's no secret that most EU governments were hoping that Mr Orbán could be unseated but that didn't happen so there's a fair bit of disillusionment and depression in Brussels the following morning.
0: There was a briefing at the start of this week from independent election observers about the nature of the Hungarian elections. What did they have to say?
1: Yeah, the OCSE sent an election observation mission that monitored the build-up to the election. The campaign analysed things like media coverage and attended in count centres and in electoral uh, polling booths to monitor the situation on the ground and announced their results on Monday. And what we heard from the observers was that this election, although it was organised in a competent way, was not held on fair terms. Marked by personal attacks and an absence of public debate, there was little opportunity for voters to consider policy options. The consolidation of media, as well as the prevalence of biased and unbalanced news coverage, limited the voters' ability to make an informed choice. Um what they're referring to there is that, for example, the opposition candidate, uh, Peter Marquisay, had just five minutes on state TV. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he had appeared on state television was so rare that it actually made news in itself, you know, that you actually gone on television. One one of the comments of the OCSE is that the state, the Hungarian state, has become confused with the ruling party. So Fidesz, the lines have been blurred. And what you hear observers um, saying often is that Fidesz just dips into the resources of the state to campaign for itself and to maintain its hold on power. So you have blanket pro Fidesz coverage on state channels, they have almost unlimited campaign resources. Uh, so there's a very, very uneven fight with the opposition. This was the third election in the row where the OCSE has concluded this, that it was might have been a free election, but it wasn't fair.
0: Another element of the election of Orbán or the re-election of Orbán is that his critics have said repeatedly that his policy agenda is a subversion of democratic norms media freedom and the rights of minorities, particularly gay and lesbian people. Yesterday, the EU announced that it's going to begin a process to cut funding to Hungary in retaliation for laws and constitutional changes Orban has brought in that the EU says breach its rules. Can you tell us about the mechanism and how significant this move is? And of course, what happens next?
1: So as members of the European Parliament gathered for their plenary session in Strasbourg on Tuesday, the European Commissioner, President Ursula von der Leyen, addressed them and announced that the Commission was uh, planning to use for the first time a new tool that would allow it to Uh, Freeze EU budgetary funds from going to Hungary if it's deemed that there are breaches of rule of law that are endangering the EU's financial interests. Um, So, this wasn't an expected announcement. Um, Von der Leyen said that she'd informed the Commission had informed Hungary that they were going to the next step on this. Uh, What it is, is it's a new way that the Commission can enforce the kind of rule of law commitments that EU countries are supposed to follow as members of the European Union, the kind of shared values that the bloc supposedly stands for, by linking those values to the budget, to cold, hard cash. It requires quite a solid standard of proof. So the European Commission would have to prove that budgetary funds, EU budget funds, are being... Wasted the financial interests of the EU are being jeopardized due to rule of law backsliding in Hungary. So that could be like a lack of independent judicial oversights or other elements like that. Ahead of the Hungarian election, a number of opposition politicians in Hungary, including MEPs, had called for this this tool that's called the Conditionality Mechanism to be triggered already because what they say is that the... Uh, leader there, Viktor Orbán uses EU budget funds to enrich his allies, and it's a tool for him to cling on to power, to solidify his hold on power. He he dips into those funds to reward those close to him and increase the the general buy in to that system. So they had been calling for this to be triggered ahead of the Hungarian election. The timing is quite interesting. The fact that it's been announced just two days since the election. It suggests that perhaps the commission wanted to avoid the appearance of interfering in the election in any way. But, you know, now that the election is over, feels that it can go ahead with this next step. They had sent a kind of questionnaire to Hungary on the issue last year, late last year, and now said that they got the results. And based on those, they were keen to move on to the next step. It represents a sort of an upping of the ante, a slight tightening of the screw on Hungary in terms of budget funds, um, so it remains to be seen now uh, what the next steps will be.
0: Now, it's interesting that it, over recent years, there's, there has been, and I use the phrase advisedly, an Eastern bloc of countries forming within the European Union who had maybe shared similar views in terms of the, the populist governments and the nationalist stance. But the war in Ukraine has pushed a lot of countries, notably Poland, much closer to the EU as they have become fierce critics of the war. Will this result, do you think, leave Hungary more isolated within the European Union than it has been uh, up to now?
1: This is the major test that's now facing the EU. And I think many of the member states are now braced to see whether Mr Orban is emboldened by this result and whether he will start to block sanctions that the rest of the EU wants to impose on Russia, for example. Hungary has very freely wielded its veto in the past on various foreign policy files, particularly tending to do favours for overseas authoritarian states. Um, So there's a big question about whether that will happen. So far, Mr. Orban has... Very much trod a path, which was the middle ground, though. Um, He hasn't been blocking sanctions. He has been going along with them while arguing in favor of the particular energy circumstances of his country and opposing gas cuts for that reason, which is quite a pragmatic one. But there's a lot that can be done, which is short of outright blocking. So there's many. Options along the way to soften sanctions or to delay things or things like that. So, all eyes will be on what will happen next. In terms of the alliance with Poland and other states that have rule of law problems of their own, the war has had a really interesting effect on that. Because of Polish history, the Polish government is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, EU voice uh, in favour of tough action on Russia. They want this invasion to go absolutely no further, because if you listen to Russian state television, they openly talk about Poland as being next. So it's uh, it's no surprise really. Both Poland and Hungary have been uh, have had real difficulties with the European Commission and you know threats to cut off or interrupt EU funding because of democratic backsliding in their countries. And there's a hope, I suppose, in Western and Northern Europe that now Poland could have an opportunity to change course on that, to re-refind its sort of pro-European impulses and reverse things like what they've been accused of, which is stacking the judiciary to make sure that judgments come in favour of the government. That remains to be seen. There isn't so much of a sign yet of that, but definitely there's been a kind of a seismic shift in alliances it's a moment in which many throughout the EU have a lot of sympathy with Poland, which has been the primary first destination for most Ukrainian refugees. So they've processed and accepted millions, literally, of, of Ukrainian refugees. The big question, um, as you mentioned, is whether authoritarianism within the EU continues to spread. So whether Hungary over the next four years will become a model and a pattern that more leaders in the region or beyond follow. And that's a constant tension because it really, really undermines the sort of purpose of the EU if you have democratic backsliding within it.
0: Naomi O'Leary, thank you very much for talking to us. That's it for today. We'll be back on Friday. This episode of In the News was produced by Suzanne Brennan, Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan.